Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Chase. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for November 18th, 2022. Sorry, it's coming out a little bit late. Um, I just have a lot of stuff going on. So I'm going to kick it off with Thunderbolts number four from Marvel. This is written by Jim Zub. We've got art by Sean Isaacs and Netho Diaz. I guess I should say they're handling the pencils. Isaacs and Victor Olazaba on inks. Java Tartahilla on colors and Joe Sabino on letters. So this has been a really fun series so far with this newest version of Thunderbolts written by Zub with Hawkeye sort of leading the team. And I've talked before about how Hawkeye is a little bit of a strange character for me in terms of they, they've sort of turned him into a punchline, kind of a humorous character. And he was always so earnest and gun-ho and really looked up to Captain America. And I think back to those issues of West Coast Avengers where he, he took things so seriously. And I like that Zub's bringing a little bit of that back in terms of being sort of meta and Hawkeye himself is sort of realizing and there's a dream sequence here. I'm assuming it's some sort of dream sequence that he's he's talking about because there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on in this book. And there's a, a fantastic double page spread from the artist where all the characters are superimposed on this collage background of them doing various things in New York City and apparently kind of winning over the city and uh, having their support. And then Terminus shows up. And that's not a spoiler because it's right there on the cover. Uh, but Terminus, you know, he's a pretty much a you know world-beating level villain, not exactly the type of being that you would think the Thunderbolts, who are a little more street level, would be able to handle. Um, so how that's going to play out, are they going to be able to beat Terminus? Is this even really happening? That's something that's yet to be determined, but I'm really loving the fast pace and the lightheartedness of this title. Uh, but I have a feeling that that lightheartedness that Jim Zub's giving us is, is sort of hiding a kind of a deeper thread that's more serious, if that makes sense, uh, and is exploring kind of what it means to be a hero and redemption and that sort of thing. So uh, along uh, Zub's writing, along with the Sean Isaacs pencils are fantastic. So uh, really bright colors as well from uh, Tartahilia. So uh, this is the title I'm really, really enjoying. Um, what's interesting is although it feels fast paced, it feels like a quick read. There's a little bit of that, that background of seriousness that I'm talking about, that sort of meta uh, commentary and theme that is playing out kind of slow. Um, and so I don't say that to say, hey, this is book isn't moving fast enough. I, I say that to kind of drive home the point of this is a really compelling book in terms of you, you read it and it's a quick read and it's entertaining. And so then I immediately want more, right? Like it's, it's just like really good, like a really good dessert, you know, um, where you, you know, you, you take a few bites and before you know it, it's gone. And then you're like, oh, that was so good. I just want more. So, uh, Fantastic job by by Zub and uh, Isaacs and the rest of the creative team on uh, on Thunderbolts. Uh, so I'm going to save that one till the end. Uh, so let's skip forward. Next book from Marvel is called Murder World. This one is also written by Jim Zub. This time he has a co-writer, Ray Fox. Jeth Jethro Morales does the art. Matt Miller on colors. Corey Petit on letters. Uh, if you're a Marvel fan at all, you're probably familiar with the term Murder World. Those are the amusement parks, if you will, of Arcade, who I want to say when he first showed up was a 
Avengers villain, but he, he's shown up everywhere. Uh, X-Men, Spider-Man, um, you know, some issues of Marvel team up and whatnot over the years. And so basically this guy, he's like a multi, multi, multi billionaire in, in terms of today's wealth standards. And for whatever reason, rich and bored and decided to hire himself out as an assassin, basically. And rather than kind of do it himself, because apparently he has some genius level intellect in terms of creating electronics and uh, robots and androids and b- basically uses that intellect to create those things uh, as death traps and then hires himself out to various supervillains to say, hey, who do, who do you want me to kill? You want me to kill Spider-Man? Do you want me to kill? And it doesn't have to necessarily be um super uh superheroes it can be you know he'll he'll kidnap anybody take them dump them in murder world and it's just a way to amuse himself right you try to get through these death traps and get from one end to the other so in this latest um murder world well this first murder world uh series we're getting but it's in the latest appearance of uh, arcade here uh it it seems like it's going to be a bit of an anthology series so this first one's murder world avengers but we have other Murder World titles coming up later on. There's going to be Murder World Spider-Man, Murder World Wolverine, Murder World Moon Knight, and it's all going to come to a conclusion in Murder World Game Over. So what's going on is that Arcade has uh, created this Murder World, and there's been you know various incarnations of it over the years, and... Uh, he's basically doing like uh, what is it a squid squid game? I think that was the the name of the Netflix show where he's inviting all these people in. Uh, he's you know super secretive, and you come and you go through Murder World, and you know there's supposedly there's only one person that makes it to the end. And you make it to the end, and you win like two hundred million dollars or something you know ridiculous like that out of the the hundred people that start off. So there is this YouTuber. I'm sure it's not called YouTube in the Marvel universe, but he's basically a YouTuber, this influencer who has. Uh, a, a big following and he's kind of taken on himself to explore various mysteries, you know, Bigfoot and that sort of thing. And so, you know, he hears this rumor about murder world and he gets some, some uh, pictures of an old murder world that w- was like back in the wilderness somewhere that's been abandoned and he makes a video about it and says he's investigating and arcade gets wind of this and invites him and, and says, Hey, Let's why don't you come and make a documentary like you do and and put it out there for your fans and, you know, grow my fan base and what have you of the latest, um, you know, contest, if you will. And so this guy, maybe stupidly, go go goes ahead and takes Arcade up on his offer, not knowing what he's getting himself into. And then uh, things go completely off the rails from there. So it's it's not at all what you think it's going to be, not at all what this guy thought it was going to be. And. Uh, again, fast-paced, interesting. Um, I think the best part about the book is that you really don't know what's going to happen next. I suppose it, it, Squid Game was kind of like that as, w- uh, as well. Um, you just never knew who's going to survive, who's not. Brutal death scenes and, and that sort of stuff. So uh, that's what this book is. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it's like a must-read. It's enjoyable. I'm going to be curious how these different other one shots tie in and then how it's all going to come together and game over. Because I, as I said, it feels like it's going to be this anthology, you know, series of one shots, if you will. So uh, it's okay. I've, I've always, I've always been um, kind of a fan of arcade. I like the idea of the character. Uh, it, it is like one of those things though, where you, you have to be super willing to suspend your disbelief, right? Like 
the amount of work, you know, construction crews to build the infrastructure of these buildings and, and all that, like it would, there would be no way you could really keep built the building of a murder world secret, at least not the outside of it. Right. So this idea that arcade can, can create these facilities, if you will, and it's got to take years, right. But he creates these uh, facilities and then who do you get to repair them and that sort of thing. Like he can't, you can't think about that too much because the, the whole illusion of it sort of falls apart, but, but it's fun. It's fun. So, uh, all right. Up next we have from image comics, the latest issue of the deadliest bouquet. We're up to issue number four. This is from Erica Schultz. She handles the script and the letters. Corella Borelli does the art Tom Chu on colors. Uh, this is just a fun book. Like I've talked about before, you've got these three sisters. They're reunited because their mother, who was a bit of a Nazi hunter, has been murdered, and they're trying to figure out who did it. The very dysfunctional childhood between the abuse that their father used to heap upon their mother and them, and then their mother taking revenge and killing their father, burying him in the backyard, So, uh, and training her daughters in these you know, martial arts and militaristic um, talents and you know, training them in weapons and, and all kinds of you know, the break in stealth. Uh, just all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily teach teenage girls. Um, So, you know, almost a special forces boot camp type uh, situation that they grew up in. Um, But with their mother being murdered, there's a lot of police scrutiny on trying to solve the crime. And obviously there's a lot about these girls past, a lot about their, their family's past that they don't want to come to light things that go all the way back to their, uh, their grandmother and maybe even their great grandmother things with hunting Nazis and killing people and uh things their mother did and so it's a bit of a balancing act they do want to find out for themselves who killed their mother it seems like they want revenge in a way but then they're trying to get information from the police and so it's a little bit of this you know procedural mystery drama we don't know who killed their mother we don't know why we know she was acting strangely so um, there's that aspect of the book and then where it really shines is just in the relationship between these three sisters Erica Schultz gives them very different personalities. You, you would almost think it's one of the situations where how the heck could these three women have grown up in the same family and be so wildly, wildly different from each other in temperament and in personality. So that's kind of interesting and they don't necessarily get along, but you can feel in the background that there is uh, love there and, and they obviously all cared for their mother. So it's a really interesting series, definitely different from anything else out there on the stands right now. So if it sounds intriguing to you, uh, I definitely recommend you check it out. Uh, all right. Up next, we have one of uh, a few Christopher Cantwell books that are out today. This is Namor, The Submariner Conquered Shores, issue number two, Death by Machine, uh, written by Cantwell. As I mentioned, Pasquale Ferry is the artist, Matt Hollinsworth on colors, and Joe Caramagna on letters. This is just a, such a fun book. You know, I, I talked... Uh, the first uh, issue and Christopher was kind enough to reach out to me uh, saying he was really glad that I, I kind of understood where they were going with it. And I, I mentioned that I, I thought when it was announced, this was, you know, it, well, let me give some background on the world. So the Cree uh, attacked earth and it melted all the ice caps. And so the, the whole, whole entire earth is flooded. And so Namor who, you know, for many years wanted to win the war with the surface world as it, as it were, he sort of has his victory, right? There's not much of the surface world to have a war with. Um, and they're, they're even to the point where they, uh, Atlantis has helped set up some underground oxygenated environments for people to live in because there's just not that much uh, left on the surface and what is left is irradiated. And so 
uh, there's not many just normal humans left. And Atlantis is thriving, meanwhile, under the water. So you would think in this sort of way, with Namor finally accomplishing his goal, that he would this series would be sort of introspective with Namor thinking back on his life and the things he's gone through and kind of an examination and is there regret there and that sort of thing. Um, and sort of a, a quiet, a quieter series, if you will. What Cantwell is giving us and Pasquale Ferry with fantastic art are giving us is something so different. This is an action. This is an action title. This is Namor on a quest. Uh, we saw on the last uh, reveal of the issue one that he saw flying through the sky, what he believes to be the Jim Hammond version of the human torch, somebody that he teamed up with in world war two, along with captain America to fight Nazis. So why is he still there? What can he offer? Um, you know, it's a mystery that Namor wants to solve, along with helping to solve the problem with uh, having enough food and oxygen for those people that do live in that colony um, under the sea, if you will, uh, and perhaps bring the people that are holding out um, hope to live on the surface. Luke Cage is their leader and kind of the remnants of New York City saying, stop struggling up here. Uh, you know, your numbers are dwindling. You're not going to make it. Please relocate underneath the sea. And we will, uh, you know, provide you with what you need. And and uh, Luke Cage, he doesn't trust anymore. He doesn't trust the Atlanteans. So there's that political aspect as well. So that's sort of um, where the the story is going. And what I mentioned uh, in my review last time is how Namor he's so impetuous or always has been, um, and he's older now and and a little wiser and maybe um, realizes the the mistakes that he's made in the past with looking before he leaps, so to speak, and maybe making choices that weren't in his best interest nor in the best interest of the surface world. So this older Namor, who no longer is the ruler, his niece, Namorita, or cousin, I uh, can't remember which cousin, I think, um, is actually the ruler of Atlantis. So he, in a way, he's sort of free to, to do what he wants to explore. And so this examination of Namor is going to be during this quest to find Jim Hammond. And uh, what does Hammond have to do? And there's another faction, you know, we have the Atlanteans, we have the humans. There's another faction that's revealed um, that still exists on earth in this issue. That is going to be something both the Atlanteans and, and humans have to deal with. And then the complicated nature of the relationship between Hammond and Namor and Captain America um, that's to be explored as well. So I, I find this to be fascinating. I mentioned it again, when I reviewed the first issue um, just how this is such a great way to explore who Namor is rather than something kind of a little slower and a little more subdued. Instead, we're getting kind of in your face action. And again, it's just not at all what I expected. And those are some of the best comic stories, right? Like when a series subverts your expectations, it's not what you thought it was going to be. And instead it's so much better and so much different and heads down a different path. So ultimately I can't wait to see what this is going to say about who Namor is, you know, in this, in this far future uh, and what Cantwell has to say about him because Christopher Cantwell is a, uh, a writer who really handles villains extremely well, right? Like his Dr. Doom series was Eisner nominated uh, with Salvador LaRocca art. He's doing the um, golden goblin series that just kicked off. I'm going to talk about that book here in a, in a couple minutes with his, uh, one of the collaborators on his Iron Man run, Angel Unzetta. So he is somebody that handles the idea of kind of a darker psyche, a darker personality really, really well, and can uh, just has this knack to get into their 
like their thought process and who they are. Um, like that, that doom series was just so fantastic. And it almost seemed like he was taking doom on this redemptive arc um, and just really set it up so well. And then kind of pulls the rug right out from under you at the end. Uh, if you haven't read that, it gets my highest possible recommendation, make a great Christmas gift for somebody who loves comics. So definitely check that out uh, and definitely be picking up uh, name more conquered shores, something really special. And the Pascal fairy art, just gorgeous. Um, there's some softer lines, which kind of suit the the tone of the series being that a lot of it takes place underwater or on the water. So uh, I'm a big fan of it. The other thing uh, about the art is the color work is done uh, extremely well by Matt Hollinsworth. Um, with a lot of blues based on this world that's flooded. You would expect that blues and purples, um, but we get plenty of, you know, bright oranges and, and reds from the scenes with Hammond and, and that sort of stuff. So, uh, definitely recommend it. Pick it up. Uh, even if you're not a Namor fan, I, there's a lot there. I don't think you need to be a Namor fan. And in fact, this may, in fact, turn you into a Namor fan. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have She-Hulk. This is issue number eight, written by Rainbow Rowell. Takeshi Miyazawa is the artist. Rico Renzi on colors. Joe Caramagna on letters. So we had a bit of a cliffhanger ending last issue. So Jen Walters was out having coffee at this cafe and was uh, attacked by this guy who looked like he was sort of hulked out and they did a little bit of a battle and then the guy escaped and then Jen finds out where the guy lives uh, in his civilian identity. So she goes there at the end of last issue and this woman who's uh, kind of deformed, like she has a very small body, but a really big head, just something that's not right about her. Um, she knocks on the door, this woman answers. She's very surprised to see She-Hulk there. She-Hulk enters and gets captured. So in this issue, we get the background of who that guy is that she fought with uh, a couple of issues ago, who this woman is with the big head, uh, what their relationship is, and how they're uh, tied to to Jen, how they're tied to She-Hulk. Other than that, I can't say anything about this issue. It would all be a tremendous giveaway. Uh, I, can't, I don't want to spoil anything. It's a fun issue. Um, the Miyazawa art, it's a little stylized. It's a little... I almost want to say juvenile, which gives this an interesting feel because in a way it's a really uh, serious and almost disturbed or depraved sort of story um, with, you know, it has to do with obsession and, and whatnot. Um, but I, I guess it does in a way lighten the mood and, and uh, sort of keep it closer to the tone that the She-Hulk series has had overall. So far, I think maybe if you got an artist who was a little bit more traditional comic art or photorealistic, that it would come across as really dark, uh, and that might not necessarily suit the tone. It might feel a little incongruous with uh, the rest of the series. So uh, I think it works on that level. Uh, as far as the covers go, uh, Jen Bartel does a couple of fantastic covers for this uh, series, and there's a uh, there's a preview of the cover for issue nine from Jen Bartel, which is fantastic as well with Jack of Hearts in a suit and Jen wearing this white pantsuit. And man, Jen Bartel, uh, born to draw She-Hulk. She just draws a, a gorgeous Jen Walters. So uh, I know some people haven't been big fans of the series. It does feel like a departure from previous She-Hulk series, but I think that's good. I think the most recent uh, She-Hulk series, I think it was Mariko Tamaki that finished that off. Um it, it almost was too serious in, in, in a lot of ways. And so this is a little more lighthearted. It doesn't 
go into the humor, doesn't lean into the humor as much as, say, like the John Byrne classic She-Hulk uh, series did. But it has its own sort of charm, if you will. So I- I'm really enjoying it. Uh, all right. Up next, also from Marvel, we have a one-shot Blade Vampire Nation written by Mark Russell, art by Dave Wachter, colors by D. Cunniff, letters by Corey Petit. This is all about the uh, the vampire nation that Dracula formed and uh, the fact that the UN has recognized it as crazy. Stravmore um, is the, the capital city, if you will, of Vampirist, which is the vampire kingdom. Uh, and if you haven't been following along, if you're not aware at all, so Blade, Eric Brooks, who we, uh, many of you may know, uh, you know, Wesley Snipes movies that were great back in the day. Um, he's actually teamed up with, with Dracula, which seems like something in a way he would never do, but you know, he is the sheriff. Uh, he was the law enforcement of this city, um, and of the, the nation of Vamprisk. And it's all about, okay, if we can get vampires to all come and live here and have their own nation where they're out and they're exposed and they're not slinking in the shadows and, you know, hiding from people and murdering humans, then in a way it's accomplished Blade's mission, right? It's prevented um, vampires from, from hurting humans. So that's why he has teamed up. So this issue starts off with uh, an assassination attempt. So that leads to Blade getting involved and uh, needing to investigate what's going on. So um, the action moves along pretty quickly, um, and it's more a political book than it is an, an outright Blade fighting vampires and you know horror book. It, it, it like I said, it's definitely political, and it feels like a setup more than anything. It feels like a setup going forward for a, a new Blade series, kind of establishing new status quo. Uh, because it introduces this idea to a lot of readers, I think, of this vamp, you know, this vampire nation that uh, Count Dracula is um, is the ruler of, you know, this vamp vampirisk. Um, and and the other thing about Dracula that we see here, he he looks more aged than I've seen him look as a, a Marvel character in a long time. So that's kind of interesting as well. And you know, when you ta- when you're talking about a political book. Uh, you know, the writer Mark Russell is somebody who kind of excels um, at at writing things that are that are political and kind of meta. And so, yeah, I wonder how much this is establishing something going forward. It's it's an interesting idea to explore for sure. This idea of vampires having their own nation and you know, kind of being out in the world, known to the general populace that they they actually exist. They're not just some you know nightmare movie monster or what have you um but the fact that dracula wants them to be out in the open and um and you know he wants a seat at the table of the un and that sort of thing it's uh, like i said it's intriguing to think about so if you're a blade fan um you know if, if you're going to be picking up a blade series if a, if a new one starts you definitely want to pick this up because it uh, does establish the current status quo for vampires and dracula and blade currently in the marvel universe all right, let's see. Up next, we have Gold Goblin. I mentioned this before. This is the new book uh, focusing on Norman Osborn, written by Christopher Cantwell. Lan Medina is the artist. Antonio Fabella on colors. Joe Sabino on letters. Uh, in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man, if you've been reading that uh, toward the end or back quarter of the Nick um, Spencer run, 
the Sin Eater reappeared and he shot Norman Osborn with his enchanted or what, magical shotgun, whatever you want to call it, that takes away sin, supposedly. So, I, you know, we can argue back and forth on if that that that's really the case. Does Norman Osborn really deserve another chance or what have you? But bottom line is he actually feels remorse. He actually feels guilt for the things that he's done. He's back at the headquarters of, of Oscorp. You know, back as the CEO, and he built Peter a new technolo- technologically advanced uh, Spider-Man costume that's, you know, kind of cool and comes with its own sort of spider glider, if you will. And uh, there was uh, the last issue, or maybe the second to last issue that's come out of Amazing Spider-Man where uh, Peter was getting his butt kicked by two separate Green Goblins. It was it was both... Um, Roderick Kingsley, as well as Ned Leeds. Roderick had used some sort of mind control or brainwashing or something on on Ned Leeds and was able to uh, convince him that he needed to be the Hobgoblin again. So he he was attacking. These two Hobgoblins were attacking Peter, and Peter was losing and may even have been killed if it wasn't for Norman um, putting on a, a new version of the goblin costume that, where he's called the gold goblin. And I will say that the design looks really cool. Uh, one thing you can say about the hobgoblin or, or the green goblin rather, is that he always looked really menacing and evil just based on, uh, you know, the design of the character, as opposed to this gold goblin where his costume is white and red or, or white and uh, gold rather. And it's, it's very clean. It, it looks it evokes this idea of, of heroism. Now, whether or not Norman Osborn is actually a hero is another story entirely. And you know, you guys know that I always will call out when a, a publisher seems to want to turn uh, somebody who's a villain, a classic villain, a popular villain into a hero. It never rubs me the right way. It's like we already have, in my mind, kind of a shortage of enough interesting and compelling villains. So please don't take the good ones that we have and turn them into heroes. Um, you know, Harley Quinn is the, obviously the perfect example of that Punisher to a lesser, lesser extent, because he was always sort of an anti-hero. But um, that's not at all what Christopher Cantwell is doing here. Like I was saying when I was talking about his Doctor Doom series earlier, he does such a great job and seems to have such a fantastic understanding of what it is that make these villains tick. I don't know what it says about Cantwell himself, that he seems to understand these darker psyches of these classic villains. Um, I don't think that he identifies with them more than he does with the heroes but like i said he seems to have an understanding i think maybe there's a fascination there of why these people make the choices that they make and you know you could argue that if you've read uh you know all the norman osborne content up to this point that norman himself has had some some trouble you know um the the idea of mefesto approaching him to basically make a deal and and take advantage of of Norman when he was vulnerable when he was young when he was trying to make a name for himself um so you know there could be an argument made that maybe Norman Osborn is not 100% at fault um but that's neither here nor there i mean i think most people just think of him as a flat out villain and the guy is and always has has been but this idea of looking at him through the lens of a hero is a fascinating one and i don't think there's a better writer out there working today that's better suited to handle it than uh than christopher cantwell so 
Um, I think that the exploration of, of Cantwell on Norman Osborn is going to be interesting. It's going to be different than Doom, different than, you know, what he's doing on Namor because Norman is such a different guy. Um, you know, I think there was always a self-awareness about Norman Osborn and that, that sort of still is true, even though he's, you know, feeling remorse now for the things he's done. But I think even back in his evilest moments, he was aware that what he was doing was not right. As opposed to, you know, if you contrast that with doom, for example, where doom always thinks that doom is right and doom's doing, you know, what is best for doom. And so, therefore, in his mind, he's doing the right thing because it's what's right for Doom. Um, Namor, kind of similar to the same extent they both have big egos. Um, Norman's ego is, is different. You know, it's about power. It's not necessarily about uh, control, if you can um, make that distinction. So, again, Christopher Cantwell is a fantastic artist. The theme that runs throughout this issue is this idea of the guilt that that Norman feels should he be out there wearing the gold goblin costume in public? Should he be out there being a hero? Um, because there is that danger. He feels that danger of could he slide back into the role of green goblin, you know, and there was some reluctance to, you know, even go out there to save Peter a, a little bit because he just didn't want to open himself up to the risk of being tempted to become the green goblin again. And he's one step closer if he's using the technology, if he's using the glider, if he's, you know, out there in action, so to speak. Um, and he, he's uh, again, self-aware enough to realize that. So the temptation is there and I guess it's just a matter of time and we'll have to wait and see, does the temptation outweigh the guilt that he feels for the things that he's done? Um, and, uh, will the, the things that he's done continue to, to haunt him almost literally as we see in this issue as well. So, um, the art is really fantastic as well. I, you know, earlier I said it was Angel Unzetta. I thought it was Angel Unzetta on this series. I'm not sure why I thought that. Um, but Lan Medina's art is uh, is fantastic as well. So, um, I mean, the Green Goblin, again, immensely popular character. I'm not particularly surprised that he's got his own series. Um, but I'm I'm pleasantly uh, satisfied with the, the, the way the first issue went. Uh, I didn't really have any expectations per se for the series. Um, I think it's after, after uh, uh, what I thought Namor was going to be turned out to be something completely different that Namor conquered shores storyline uh, series. I sort of stopped having any expectations for what to expect when uh, it's a Christopher Cantwell written book. Um, and that goes for, you know, um, the Lee Harvey Oswald series that he's done, or she could fly uh Briar. I mean, the guy he's got a, uh, he can write a diverse genre of story and make it compelling and make it interesting. So he's quickly becoming one of my favorite writers. Um, and for a while he's somebody that you know, he work whose uh, work I paid attention to. I was such a fan of halt and catch fire, the show that he co-created along with Christopher Rogers. I, you know, once he started writing comics and I got a chance to interview him at San Diego Comic-Con, I was like, man, this is a guy whose work I need to pay attention to because there's there's something – he's got something to say as opposed to just uh, here's another generic Spider-Man story. Here's another generic um, Green Goblin or Norman Osborn or, or Namor story. So 
uh, do recommend you picking up um, Green Goblin, especially like I was mentioning earlier, if you're a fan of that Doom series. Um, man, I mean, Dr. Doom, I, I, I wonder what villain he's going to take on next. Wouldn't mind him um, maybe doing a Dr. Octopus story. That might be interesting. Uh, anyway, on to the next book I'm going to talk about, Captain America and the Winter Soldier Special. This spins out of the latest issue of Captain America, I think it's Sentinel of Liberty, the the uh, um, the Steve Rogers-centric Captain America book, written by the same two writers that write that book, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Pencils are by Kev Walker, inks by J.P. Mayer, colors are by K.J. Diaz, letters by Joe Caramagna. It's interesting that this is called Captain America and the Winter Soldier special because really it's focused on just uh, the Winter Soldier. It's focused just on Bucky and even more so than Bucky, it's focused on this outer circle. Like we get the origin of the outer circle. We come to understand how they were formed, what their um, quote unquote game is, if you will, and how Bucky's going to fit into that. So I can't really go into any detail other than that without spoiling. But what I will say is that this is kind of backstory um, or uh, context that enriches what Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing have done on Captain America Sentinel of Liberty already. So uh, I think if you are enjoying that series, that this is a must read because I imagine they didn't necessarily have room in the regular Sentinel of Liberty series um, to put this in there, but felt it was important enough. And, and we got this, uh, got this special. So um, it's interesting. It's, it shows the breadth of the outer circle and and how long they've been at this century game, as they call it, and um, kind of what their what the players are. Who we get introduced to all the different players and sort of their motivations and what their roles are, and it's really interesting. I, I'm, I'm so enjoying what these two co-writers have created with Sentinel Liberty. I've talked about it being very much um, reminiscent of the Secret Empire era of Cap where he's going up against these um, these organizations that are working from the shadows, if you will. And that's just um, kind of a classic Captain America villain, you know, whether he's going up against Nazis that are secretly um, accessing occult powers or the secret empire or AIM or, you know, it's just this idea of going up against these clandestine organizations is there's something very classically captain america about that and the fact that they're bringing in bucky and they're tying it into the the earliest history of these characters their relationship their the, their origins itself uh and you guys know i'm not a big fan of retcons but what's so interesting about the way they're doing it is it literally changes nothing you don't have to go back and say oh well if you look, go back and read captain america's origin this person didn't show up or that person didn't show up this is a clandestine organization. They always would have been behind the scenes pulling the strings anyway. So it's easy to imagine that that is in fact the case. And even though we don't see any of these characters or this organization in the origin of Bucky or the Winter Soldier or Captain America, it's easy to imagine that they were uh, a part of it working behind the scenes. So uh, as I said, if you're enjoying Sentinel of Liberty, uh, this is a must read because it really gives you a lot of context for the Outer Circle and establishes who Bucky is now and what his role is going to be going forward. So definitely pick it up. 
All right, last book I'm going to talk about, well, actually next to last book, uh, from Image, 10,000 Black Feathers, number three. This is from Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino, the uh, Eisner winning team that brought us Gideon Falls, uh, Dave Stewart's on the colors, Steve Wands on letters, and we get some more of Casey and Jack, Jackie, uh, these two friends that you know, in, in younger year, elementary school years, junior high, they um, they spent a lot of time together in Jackie's basement, creating their own world, and um, did not not exactly sure what they planned to write a book or created a video game or sort of a Dungeons and Dragons type campaign. But uh, really, what Cassie enjoyed about it, and Jackie, as she got older, feels like she sort of outgrew it and wanted to go out and you know, be a part of something and, and be more social and, you know, uh, maybe taking things too far, having relationships with guys who are much, much older, drinking drugs, that sort of thing. And, and Cassie feeling like, Hey, this is, you know, not what we should be doing. And, um, so we get a little bit of context of that and start hearing a little bit about who may have been responsible or what happened with Jackie. Now we know as the reader that it was something more behind the scenes, as opposed to what, um, you know, people might think like maybe somebody killed her or um, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not a hundred percent clear. Um, we just know that there's something going on um, some force malevolent or otherwise that is uh, pulling the strings and has basically been this malevolent force in um, in their, their lives the, the whole time. So again, a bit of a setup issue, a bit of almost a bridge, I guess, between the past and the present because, you know, Jackie is missing. Um, I don't know if, you know, everybody, she's been missing so long. Everybody just assumes that she's dead. Um, don't, not, not to say that's actually the case, um, but we just don't know. And uh, and Trish, you know, d- wants to believe that Jackie's not really dead, but um, but she does have a conversation with the guy that was accused of of killing uh, Jackie in this issue, uh, Casey, and she doesn't really get any any answers other than just some vague clues about a, a guy in black. Um, but the, the imagery. And the tone of the story is set so perfectly by uh, Andrea Sorrentino's art um, that I, I think we're about to get some answers next issue with what exactly is is going on. What are the black feathers? What does that symbology mean? Um, I mean, certainly this idea of crows being affiliated with horror and the afterlife and, and that sort of stuff, that's not anything new that these guys are, are necessarily bringing to the table. Uh, but that makes it no less interesting. So, um, I mean, just based on the strength of Gideon Falls, it's like I'm pretty much going to read anything these guys put out um, that's in kind of the thriller, suspense, or horror genre because I know it's going to be fantastic. So, uh, all right. Up next, last book I'm going to talk about. This is my book of the week. It wasn't close. Uh, I mentioned Christopher Cantwell has a ton of books out this week. Well, the last book he has out is Iron Man number 25 which finishes off his run. And uh, he does work with Angel Unzetta on this one. Angel is the artist for the main story. 
colors by Frank Diarmada and letters by Joe uh, Caramagna. There are a, a couple of backup stories um, as well. One of them is a is a reprint, um, and it says it's from uh, Tales of Suspense number one twenty six. I didn't know there was a Tales of Suspense one twenty six. Um, so I'm not exactly sure where it fits in continuity, but that one is written by Kurt Busick. Um, and we've got Benjamin Dewey on the art. Um, the, the second story is by, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, Muruwa Aodeli and Dotin Akandi, which has Tony in um, the realm of the ice giants going to talk to Thor. And there's... Um, an incident Tony recalls with the Hulk that's pretty funny, but also really, really disgusting. Uh, and then there is a one-page preview uh, at the very end that's by Jerry Dugan, and I think the the art is by Juan Figueri. Um, that's a preview of Invincible Iron Man number one, which is a new series that starts back up after uh, after issue twenty-five here. Which again, I'm sort of disappointed they're going with another number one. Um, like enough with the number ones. Um, but I guess in a way it's kind of cool that Cantwell has this kind of standalone 25 issues. It can be collected in an omnibus at some point. Um, so that, that's pretty cool. Uh, but what I love about this story is it's a Tony Stark story. It's not an Iron Man story. And that in a way really encapsulates the run, the entire run of what Cantwell has done. Tony has been in the armor the vast majority of the time uh, in this run, and that is the case in this issue and in this story. But it is not an Iron Man story. It is a Tony Stark story. And at one point, Tony's even at the hospital, and it, it gets kind of meta in that Tony's there for a long period of time, and he walks outside, and he's like, God, I didn't even take my helmet off, right? I was there the whole time not as Iron Man. He wasn't like his duties as Iron Man weren't what precipitated the need for him to be in the hospital. Like he was there for, you know, more of an emotional reason uh, as opposed to, Hey, I, I need to be here to, to help somebody perform surgery or do something with technology or anything like that. Um, and so I find that to be really interesting. Uh, and it speaks to, you know, who, who Tony Stark is Um I, I almost feel like he shouldn't even call himself Iron Man, even when he's in the suit. He's just he's just Tony, and that's such a uh, an interesting take on the character for where he's come from and where he's going. So I've I've talked a lot about how well this story works for me in terms of reminding me of my my favorite era of Iron Man from the past, but it's also a reminder that the character has evolved so much, and even though. Cantwell is not giving us the sort of snarky Robert Downey Jr. take on the character that so many writers have seemed to draw from um, in the last, whatever, 10 or 15 years. Um, this is a good marriage of the two in a way. We're not getting that snark and we're not getting that humor, um, but a reminder that you can't really separate Iron Man from Tony Stark uh, anymore. You know, it used to be back in that classic run that I was talking about, it, it, you know, they were so different. So, so, you know, two different sides of, of Tony and he's pretending Iron Man is his hired bodyguard and that sort of thing. Um, and it's just, it's not that way anymore. So to be able to evoke 
the feeling that and the tone of that classic run, but make it work in modern times, I think is a, a masterstroke. And it's just a reminder that Tony, despite all his flaws and all his mistakes and, you know, uh, everything he's gone through, he's still at his heart uh, a hero and cares so much. Um, the argument could even be made that that some of the mistakes of his past were from trying too hard. You know, when he, when he takes the power of a power cosmic, if you will, and and you know makes mistakes, it's not out of any sort of maliciousness, but just out of a, such a desire to make the world a better place. And you know that being built on the fact that the relationship with his father, which was always broken, you know, wanting to prove himself uh, in his own mind to his father and live up to his father's legacy, which obviously can lead to to issues as well. So uh, again, all that is here subtextually uh, in a in a very emotional story from uh, Christopher Cantwell. So I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna miss this run of Iron Man. I, I'm I'm a big fan of Jerry Dugan too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I like. Uh, Juan Figuera's art as well. So I'm excited for what comes next, but man, this has just been such, such a great run. Definitely my favorite run of Iron Man. Uh, I God, since, since I can remember, um, definitely since I think, I think it was Kurt Busiek that, that brought us to heroes return Iron Man. Um, so pretty much since then. Uh, all right, let me give a rundown on some other books you might want to be on the lookout for today. I'm not sure what's going on with Aftershock these days. They haven't been putting out any books, but they're still around, and I hope you all got a chance to listen to my interview with their new editor-in-chief, Brian Cunningham. It might just be a transitional period for them, uh, but several series that they've been putting out that I really want to jump back in, like Calculated Man and uh, Where Starships Go to Die, Astronaut Down, all that stuff's been really, really good, so... Uh, anyway, from Bad Idea, Orc Island number three, there will be a separate review up um, on the YouTube channel for that. If you're curious, you can go listen to that. From Boom, Something is Killing the Children, number 26 is out. Over at Dark Horse, I want to mention Last Flight Out. That's written by Mark Guggenheim. It's a really great story that has its uh, trade paperback. So if you've been waiting to check it out, I do recommend it. Also, Masquerade, number three of four from Kevin Smith is, uh, is also out this week. And then DC Books. And again, reminder, you can go listen to some in-depth uh, commentary about all of these issues uh, that Rocky from Comic Boom and I did on our DC Spotlight on Tuesday. So we've got the latest Batman One Bad Day one shot. It's Mr. Freeze, number one. We've got Batman Superman World's Finest, number nine. Black Adam, number six of 12 from Christopher Priest. Catwoman, number 49. Dark Crisis, Worlds Without a Justice League, Batman, number one, which Rocky and I had difference of opinion on, but we both thought it was intriguing in a way, if not necessarily a good tie-in to Dark Crisis. Um, Dark Crisis, Young Justice concludes with number six of six. Uh, DC versus Vampires, All Out War has its penultimate issue with number five. Uh, DC, War of the Undead Gods, number four of eight felt like a lot of setup written by Tom Taylor. My favorite DC book of the week, Flash number 788, has uh, some big, big news for Wally West and his family and uh, opens up some fascinating story possibilities. So going to be interested to see where that goes. So kudos to Jeremy Adams for that. Uh, GCPD, The Blue Wall, number two of six from John Ridley, continues its topical social commentary story. Uh, Nightwing, number 98 from Tom Taylor. 
Uh, Stargirl, The Lost Children, number one of six. That was Rocky's book of the week from DC, written by Jeff Johns, gorgeous Todd Knock art. Definitely, if you love Flashpoint Beyond, if you love Doomsday Clock, hope you picked up that uh, Golden Age book last week from Johns. This is continuing that story. Uh, Titans United Blood Pack, number three of six. That's a great jumping on point for anybody looking to get interested in the uh, DC universe. Uh, so those are the DC books. And again, you can hear about all those on our DC Spotlight that came out on Tuesday. Uh, meanwhile, over at uh, IDW, we have Crashing number three. Uh, I talked about the first issue of that when it came out. It's a really great book uh, from Image. We also have Gunslinger Spawn number 14. There's a new I Hate Fairyland book uh, with issue number one. Junkyard Joe number two from Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. Uh, so the first issue gave us everything in Vietnam. This one brings us to present day with what's going on with Joe, what's going on with uh, the one guy from his platoon he managed to save, and then a last page reveal that has you going, wait, what? So curious to see where that goes. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Revolvers, number two from Top Cow. Curious to see where that series goes as well. And then Walking Dead Deluxe is up to number 51. I can't believe 51 already for that book. Uh, over at Marvel, there's a few other titles uh, that I didn't mention. Demon Wards, Shield of Justice, number one. The Gambit miniseries finishes up with number five. Uh, Immortal X-Men, number eight, is out. We've got Star Wars Dr. Aphra, number 26, as well as a new Star Wars series starting uh, Hidden Empire, number one, and also Han Solo and Chewbacca, number seven. Uh, there's also the Wakanda has its uh, limited series, has its second issue. And then Ultraman, the mystery of Ultra 7, number four of five. Uh, and I think that's it. Um, so uh, we, we appreciate you listening as always. And again, apologies for it being a couple days late. So look for uh, a lot of content coming up over the next few weeks with Christmas coming up. Of course, we'll be doing our 12 days of the comic source. And uh, if there's uh, any questions or anything that you guys want me to cover during those uh, special episodes, just hit me up on social media. So we appreciate you listening as always, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.